Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Rui Fernandez, the podcast. With Trevor and Kirk. Kirk, hey, we're back. Good morning. How are you? I am well. Um, so, we got to have another... It's, it's hot. <laughs> it's hot and humid here. It, it is. <laughs> we're in those dog days of summer. So, you know, that's that's a thing. And... I, I, and I'm loving I, it. I, I'm I'm out in my berry patch sweating. Well, I saw you cycling to work the other day, and I said, oh, look at that poor guy going off to work. And I'm in my berry patch. Yeah, well, um, I, I enjoy the cycle. The I'm trying, I try my best not to whine about summer, but because it's so short around here, but I am not, I'm one of those who does not love the heat. But, you know, oh. um, on the other... Bring on the on. other hand, in January, I dream about these days, so I'm trying hard not to complain. Well, I, I'm the kind of guy that when we do our, you know, we do our winter getaway and we go, you know, like typical Canadians, we go find a, a southern beach or, or, you know, a trip down to Cuba or something. I'm the guy that turns the air conditioning off. And, and, and I like to acclimatize myself to the ambient temperature. Like when you, when, when you get on the plane in Canadian winters, you're, you're indoors and you get on the plane, you're with a hundred people, people, you know, and then you land on a hot, steamy tarmac. You open up that, that, the, the plane door and that heat wafts into the cabin. I love well, that. Well, good. You're, you're, you're in your element in Manitoba for the last week and hopefully into next week. But, Kirk, <laughs> other than well, our weather report, <laughs> uh, I... You want to talk about let's cannabis? Let's talk about cannabis. <laughs> and we, uh, we got another nice chat with Dr. Blake Pearson. And just before we were starting up, you were commenting on, he seems to be a guy with a little bit of energy. Oh, yeah. I, he's a game. What he's doing is a game changer. Um, I've been on his webpage this morning and looking at the study he's doing that we're going to talk about. Absolutely a game changer, you know, no question about it. But I, but I, one thing I want to put out real quick here for Dr. Pearson is that uh, I was on your webpage, buddy. I don't see reefer maintenance. I don't see the fact that we've, you know, he's got he's got all those uh, those lofty uh, organizations like you know, um, I don't know. Let's see here. What what papers is he quoted here on his on his webpage? But I don't see I don't see any reefer maintenance. He's got to link our our stories on there. Absolutely. Uh, so we'll let Dr. Pearson do do most of the talking because he's he's good at that. But some of the things just I, I want people to listen for ahead of time is you know like a lot of the other docs we talked to he sort of came you know he's a primary care doc then started looking after some older patients with cannabis and then you know has progressed a lot from there and. Uh, and the fact he's uh, the latest study we're going to spend most of the time talking about this is in his local area, which, you know, the whole think global, act local. He's really doing that with in Sarnia. So he's they've got Pearson Hills, his group, Lampton College, which is in the area and one of the local uh organizations that runs long-term care have have partnered up on this uh, dementia and cannabis study. So it is 
don't think that you it's really cool that he could do this in in his local area yeah yeah no it's his i was reading it up lampton college steves and rosima nursing homes uh they got a three-year uh, uh bursary of three hundred and sixty thousand dollars it's a grant from the national sciences of engineering research council of canada so he's got 360 grand to to do this study over a three-year period of time but he told us that he should have results within six months yeah and completely unrelated but just i, I was an ncirc student a million years ago back when i thought i was going to be a physicist but yeah, the NS are a huge organization that funds stuff, all sorts of stuff, all, all across Canada. So it is very cool. That you were, hold on, say that again. You were a what student? So the group that's funding them is called NSERC. Yes. And not healthcare related at all. But a million years ago, I was a physics student working at a particle accelerator in BC, and I was a NSERC student. But you know, that was a, a different lifetime pre pre pharmacy, pre cannabis, back when I thought I was going to be a physicist. You're pretty bright. Uh, I, no, <laughs> like a I bulb. Just, <laughs> just, just the haircut. Yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, I got a, a lot of stuff to say about Dr. Pearson, but you know what? Let he, he introduces himself well, speaks well. Let's let him talk, and then we'll come back out at the other at the other end. Dr. Pearson, welcome back. Um, just so every, in case people didn't see your first episode, give us a little bit of. Uh, how you got into cannabis and what your regular practice is, and then we'll 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 get in we'll we'll get into a very exciting study that you guys are involved with. Okay, so um, I got into cannabinoid medicine about seven years ago now, and my background is primary care, family physician. Started using cannabinoids with my older patient population originally. Things like chronic pain, insomnia proved to be quite effective. So then I did a lot more research on my own, went to a lot of conferences and kind of grew my knowledge base and then started to uh, take referrals. So I then started to take referrals from some of my colleagues. And uh, after a couple years of doing 50-50 cannabinoid medicine, family medicine, I went full-time into cannabinoid medicine and I've been doing that practice now uh, for the last four or five years exclusively. And it's now, it started out, like I said, with insomnia, chronic pain, but now that uh, I'm more comfortable with things, more evidence is emerging, we see um, a variety of diagnoses now, things like uh, refractory epilepsy in the pediatric patient population, severe autism. Uh, some of these kiddos will self-harm. We'll use cannabinoids to reduce these behaviors, possibly reduce the antipsychotics they're on. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, have an interest in dementia. And of course, we'll, we'll talk about that shortly. <laughs> um, but uh, so in dementia, we see patients all across the province, um, virtually in, in long-term care homes. And really the goal is uh, with the dementia patients, we use cannabinoid medicines to improve the behaviors or agitation, uh, physically responsive, verbally responsive behaviors. And in the process, wean them off of more harmful medications like antipsychotics. That's great. And then as a nice segue into the, the study we're going to talk about, I've told the story before, I'll repeat it again. That was kind of the genesis of this podcast is we had a, a family physician who was in charge of a care home and she was getting requests to get cannabinoids into the care home. So 
we thought, sure, we, you know, we, we look after everything from chemotherapy to fentanyl patches going into this care home. Of course, we can, we can do that. And then it turned, turned out we cannot. Pharmacies were not allowed to touch cannabis at all. And uh, the best we could do was help fill out some of the paperwork for the doc. But the cannabis had to go straight from the licensed producer to the, the care home patient or back in the old days, maybe even to the family member who brought it in, which was all a very weird system. Um, it's gotten slightly better now, but still a, a weird system. Uh, but let's talk about long-term care and dementia. I know now it's been a, several years since I've been in a care home, but back then, you know, four or five years ago, you know, I'd say at least half the people in there have some form of dementia, can be higher. Um, so pe just give people an idea about how much dementia there is in care homes. Yeah, well, you nailed it. Really, it's about half the population is a pretty good rough estimate. And um, traditionally, again, antipsychotics were used. And now we know the, the black box warning on these medications. We know and the harmful side effects. And really, it's just it's kind of finding a better way to manage the behaviors. So these behaviors in long-term care, you know, when you were when you were in the care homes a few years ago, I'm sure you saw some of those behaviors, oh, yeah. right? And what what people need to understand is with the pandemic, right? A lot of those social activities, the meeting in the dining hall for dinners was gone. Everybody wearing masks was a big kind of barrier for the dementia patients that rely on facial expressions and really kind of common scenarios. So loved ones visiting was very limited. So you can kind of start to understand how not only do we have a lot of patients with dementia in long-term care, but an elevation in these responsive behaviors because a lot of things were changing and there was a lot of isolation. So that's when even I was practicing cannabinoid medicine in long-term care pre-pandemic, but right. certainly the need has gone up as a result of the pandemic. And then that really kind of dovetailed nicely into getting the funding for the study we're, we're about to do, or currently doing. And not to belabor the black box warning, but for those of you who don't know, like uh, I, I taught a little uh, polypharmacy and long-term care to nurses who are starting to go into long-term care. And you know, one of the things that would always shock them is yes, we have these behaviors that, you know, bad for the patients, bad for the people around them. And we don't have any real way to treat it, but you know, we give them antipsychotics, which was not, in, not intended to treat this and increases their chance of dying. And everyone's a little shocked. Say, well, you know, we don't have a lot of, we don't have a lot of options, but the options we do have might make them die faster. And you know, that's, none of that is good. No, no. It's like, it's pretty, pretty wild to think, oh yeah, we're going to use this medication, but uh, there are some side effects one being death, kind of the worst side effect uh, you could think of. <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned a key term as to, uh, like when it comes to cannabinoid medicine and long-term care, you mentioned polypharmacy. And when I'm working with other physicians, pharmacists, nurse practitioners, that's really one of the key points I like to, to identify is you can use one class of medications, cannabinoids, as opposed to a medication for sleep. So then we take them off their Zopiclone in long-term care. Uh, they probably have some pain as well. So we'll, we'll wean them off a gabapentin or an opioid. They might be on an SSRI for mood or anxiety. 
we mop that. So when you're talking about seniors, you're talking about long-term care. One of the biggest benefits is the ability to reduce polypharmacy in that setting. Yeah. And that's, like you said, good for everybody, including regulators, if you're listening, the bottom line, because each of those medications costs something. Yeah. 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 That's, that's really what I think will move the needle. I'm trying to raise as much awareness. Um, there's just the, the, the basic, this is better for the patients, uh, which you think should win the day with the argument, but it doesn't in, you know, insurance world and uh, obviously in, in medicine. But what I think will get this over the line is that other part you mentioned, the pharmacoeconomic reasons. Once we start seeing the pharmacoeconomic data that you actually help patients, but also it's, it's more cost effective, then we're going to see some widespread coverage, hopefully. Okay, so let's get into this study. Um, I was reading your little blurb here. There's lots of people involved. So tell us who's involved and what are you guys trying to do? Okay, so it's a, a nice collaboration between local community partners, which is really exciting to be a part of, to be in my hometown and able to do research that hopefully will be viewed on a global scale. We have my team at Pearson Health, and that's my, my clinic. We have Lampton College, that's our, our local institution um, that is affiliated in this particular study. And then we have a industry partner in Steves and Rosima, which is one of our local long-term long-term care home chains. Also, they have some retirement um, residents as well. But uh, that's the partnership. So it's it's ourselves, Lampton College, Steves and Rosima, and the the official title of the study is exploring the impact of cannabinoid therapy on persons with dementia in long-term care. Okay, and. Uh... What are you, is there a control group? Is there a treatment group? How's this set, set up? So it's really more of a, a social study at the, at the core. So there is a, it's not a randomized controlled uh, double-blind trial because clinical research, obviously, there's a lot of steps, unfortunately, a lot of hoops to jump through. Um, we've been using cannabinoid medicine in practice for years, certainly safe and uh, but seeing good results. So this is actually um, more of a social study in that Yes, we're, the patients are going to be on cannabinoid therapy because they're referred for me from the house physicians to manage behaviors. Um, but there's also um, an element of the social interaction, um, social uh, index scores, behaviors. We're looking at the neuropsychiatric inventory, dementia mood picture, so mood, responsive behaviors, social indicators. So there's some quantitative scales. Mm -hmm. The nice thing about having a robust research project like this and funding from NSER is we can have some qualitative measures too. So the research team is going to be doing interviews with POAs, caregivers, because a big part of dementia as well is caregiver burnout. So we're going to be looking at that through some qualitative measures and uh, there'll be 20 20 residents on therapy when you ask about control group and there's also a, a control group um, as well. Okay. So they're, they're, you know, not double blind, control, but there is, there is a control group and a treatment group. And, and I think it's fascinating. I never even thought about that, that you're looking at uh, caregiver burnout because I don't know a day's gone by lately that uh, they haven't been talking about a ER or something shut down because they have no staff. So caregiver burnout is a big deal. 
Big deal, big deal. So caregiver burnout, the measures I mentioned, and then of course, and we have some good uh, retrospective data that we're going to publish on this, but one of the key elements in cannabinoid therapy and long-term care, reduction in polypharmacy. So certainly we're going to be looking at um, the reduction in antipsychotics and benzos um, and things of that nature. That all sounds really good. Uh, looking at a quick blur, sorry, flipping back through the blurb, how long is this going to be going on for? So it's a six month study and the, the measures are gonna be, you know, we have a baseline measures. We're gonna repeat the measures at two months and six months. Okay, no, that sounds good. And, you know, because I'm impatient, when do we get to hear what, how it turned out? <laughs> well, the nice thing is robust enrollment. Um, Lots of, because our practice is fairly well known and again, we're getting pretty reasonable results in long-term care. Uh, there's been a number of referrals. So um, right now we're, we're in basically the first phase. So a number of residents uh, have been seen, baseline measures have been done. So kind of a, ro- a rolling enrollment. I would think 2023 at some point we'll, we'll be able to, to get those results out. Oh, that's that's pretty quick. I, I I have a kid graduating from high school in 2023, which you know se- seems like not too, that went way too fast. So th- this will come up quickly too. Oh, you know it. Yeah, it will fly by. No, so this is, and we have another topic to get to. But before we sort of wrap up with this study, anything else I missed on this study, or you you wanted the uh, the audience to know? No, I think I think that pretty much covers it. I think everybody should know that. Um, it's, it's, it's something we've been using in practice. Certainly I have for years now in long-term care. And again, when you compare the safety profile of cannabinoids to something like an antipsychotic, it really is in my mind, a no brainer. And we're hoping that with more knowledge dissemination, more physicians, more pharmacists in long-term care will get comfortable because ultimately it's a much better option um, for those residents. No, I think that's a great play to wrap it up. All right, switching gears here a little bit. We saw a tweet from you a little while ago, and I'll just do a real quick overview of the tweet. Uh, I'm usually a pretty easygoing guy, but this has got me fired up. Trumping physician expertise and forcing us to start patients on several potentially harmful meds before covering cannabis is unethical at best and dangerous at worst. Uh, Dr. Pearson, you want to share with everyone what, what got you all fired up? Sure, sure. So, yes, and fired up is, is accurate because it just it blows my mind this day and age. And in that tweet, I mentioned unethical that we know this option cannabinoid therapy. There is evidence. It's certainly a, a very safe compound, especially when you break it down into CBD and THC. Um, the fact that uh, if I want someone to have coverage from a major insurance company, we won't name names today, but suffice it to say a well-known company, the hoops to jump through are two, not one, two opioids. Uh, You have to try that clearly states must try two different opioids, which now our guidelines do not say opioids before uh, a diloxetine, a pregabalin, or even cannabinoids, according to Health Quality Ontario and just common sense, you would, it doesn't make sense. Then if you fail to opioids, you must try either a gabapentin, then epigabalin or a diloxetine, but suffice it to say four different 
options must be shown to be ineffective, even though all of those medications from a side effect profile, uh, much more side effects compared to a CBD formulation, before they will even entertain the idea of coverage. That doesn't mean they will cover it. That just means these are the hoops. And then you finally get through the gate um, to have the possibility of coverage. So why I'm fired up is because it's completely unethical and it also doesn't make much sense because those options, including gabapentin, there is no body of evidence to support their use in pain. We use it off label. It's an anti-seizure medication, but it's, it's, uh, it's interesting how that's the algorithm. And to me, I'd like to ask them, what, what is that based on? No, and uh, it's a pet peeve of Kirk's, but I'll, I'll try to talk for Kirk here. I'm sure he'll have something to say in the wrap up, but Kirk hates Gabby's. Um, I, I once had a, uh, a physician give a talk to a bunch of us and she did some bunch of work with the coroner's office and uh, she, her stress was if a medication has a cute, uh, a, a cute nickname, that's a bad, bad thing. Cause you know, she was telling us about people who had died of Vicinalis overdose. So if, if your patients come in asking for Gabby's, that's a bad sign. So yes, um, Gabby's, for those of you who haven't heard of gabapentin, unfortunately does seem to have a relatively high abuse potential, addiction potential, and like Dr. Pearson said, there's just not a lot of, we use, it's another one of those, especially neuropathic pain, we use it because neuropathic pain is hard to treat. So, you know, if you get relief from gabapentin, great, but it's one of those, we don't know what to throw at you, we'll throw Gabby's at you. But, you know, Dr. Pierce, are there better options than Gabby's? <laughs> of course, of course. And the interesting thing is oftentimes uh, when I'm working and teaching other physicians, they'll say, I, it's, it's an excuse. It's not, again, and nothing, not ragging on any of my colleagues here, but it is, it's an excuse to say there's not enough evidence for cannabinoids when there is some evidence and clearly a lot of reviews show that. Um, but then in the same time, but I'll prescribe gabapentin. So it's just, I often like to highlight that double standard because of the long-term or long-time stigma related to cannabis. Um, it's still out there, but uh, that's one of the key examples I use when, when speaking with other providers. No, and that's, that's a good one for us to keep in mind. Um, any other things that we didn't talk, talk about that you want to bring up for our audience today? Because we, we, you have been very concise so far, which is, which is excellent. <laughs> good, good. Well, it's, uh, it's pretty clear messaging these days, you know, and I think, um, I guess anything else that I would say is, is that the good news is things are changing. Um, more physicians, nurse practitioners, pharmacists are getting comfortable. Um, I just did, I do a lot of uh, work with other physicians and, and having them basically incorporate cannabinoids into their toolbox. And it, it is a bit of a process because like you mentioned, it, we're not used to it. It doesn't go through the pharmacy. It's, it's a new process. So that isn't another barrier. In addition to the stigma and bias that we just talked about, this process sometimes will alienate uh, providers, but the encouraging part and where I was going with that is, I just did a webinar on um, Tuesday night and had, I think we had 150 physicians register, a hundred showed up, uh, which has been the best turnout that I've seen over the years. So 
I guess, some encouraging signs that physicians are starting to be proactive in registering for these events as opposed to just, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go because there's a, a free dinner and <laughs> this was a webinar at night that, you know, they signed up for no kind of uh, reimbursement, if you will. And great questions, great engagement. I worked with uh, a younger physician yesterday, really exciting for me to work with someone who's just out of residency because the reception was wonderful. They were open to learning. They were keen to incorporate into their practice. And the message is always not that you need to use it on every patient and it works for every indication. It's simply, this needs to be in your tool belt here. This needs to be something you can use when appropriate. And that is becoming more mainstream. I think that is a very positive thing to end on. So Dr. Pearson, you had one more thought on greenwashing. Yeah, so this is a term that um, originally has to do with the climate crisis and big organizations that are saying, you know, they're doing things to promote um, climate and they're working and, and donating money to different organizations or different groups that are supporting climate change. And really um, that term greenwashing is, is getting used because major corporations are making this claim, but when you dig deeper, like more so for PR reasons. Right, right. Um, specifically some of the big banks, Wall Street um, type banks, a lot of them have had funds that are say eco-friendly um, or you know making claims and actually the SEC is coming down on these companies because they're not actually doing anything. It's just a trendy, right? right? A trendy thing yeah. to show we're doing our part, but really it's just a PR move. And uh, they're actually getting fined by the SEC for doing this thing. So the greenwashing is, is happening. And what I'm seeing, we're talking about the insurance companies, same kind of thing, greenwashing in a different sense. So they're saying, we, we do have coverage. Yes, there's our plans. Cannabis is covered and it's greenwashing in a different sense. They're not telling you that it's covered, but the physician has to try multiple opioid, opioids, gabapentin, pregabalin only to get denied. Um, so it's, it's an example of greenwashing in a different sense. And it just, you know, it's kind of a nice uh, coincidence that cannabis green, but um, certainly it's frustrating because you'll hear this. Well, we have coverage for our plan members or sponsors, but really when you kind of drill down on it, there is no coverage because there's so many hoops to jump through. No, um, unfortunately, just, just like people who, you know, buy carbon credits instead of retrofitting their building, you know, the yes, we, we cover cannabis, but don't read the fine print. I, I agree. That's definitely something we should gently or not so gently push the insurance companies on. Yes, yes. So we'll be certainly doing that not so subtly, hopefully, uh, in the near future. Kirk, uh, let's start with Poke the Bear Kirk. Gabapentin. 
How how much do you love the gabapentin? Well, just like I said, every so often we get we get like-minded people. Uh, Gabby's when I worked corrections, um, working as a nurse in corrections, Gabby's were a misused subject uh, substance. Um, I've always thought it was ironic that all that many of the doctors that will poo-poo cannabis therapies uh, are very quick to uh, you know to uh, prescribe and pre I guess nurse practitioners, but I don't see it too often. Nurse practitioners. But they'll prescribe gabapentins for, for, for modalities that aren't even on the, on the list. So yes, I'm glad that he, um, I'm glad that he raised that. Uh, I mean, we, I, I forget which the episode was. Pain management, I think, where cannabinoids are what fourth, or third, fourth on the list, and insurance companies, insurance companies won't fund, won't fund uh, cannabis unless you've tried opioids, and and. It, and it kills me. We, we have more research. Oh, should we, how do I word this? We've got so much research on the damage opioids have done. I mean, I've said over and over, go, over and over again in this podcast that I've been nursing 40 years. I started, I started nursing in 1980 as a student, graduated in 82 with a diploma. Went on to get all sorts of academic paper that I can paper a wall with. But besides that, nursing for 40 years, first aid before that, I was involved with first aid and stuff before that. But I can remember, I can remember going to in services and um, uh, and conferences where doctors, experts stood up and said nobody should live with pain, and they were promoting pain management, analgesics, pumping it out. And I can remember sitting there with, with my doctor, uh, my, my medical director at the time, I was an EMS in those days, and, um, and my, uh, my medical director was sitting there and we were talking to him and said, so, so everyone gets opioids? You know, is that, the, is that the new plan? Is that the new way to go? And 30, 30 years later, oh, um, by the way, we may have misrepresented some of the studies, you know, from Proctor, yeah. from Smith, what is it, Proctor Smith, Proctor, let's name no, names, uh, let's name names, what was that? Purdue, Purdue firm was the one who, they were, they were, they were the OxyContin people. That's the family, did, right, that's that family that went up? Uh, that, that's the, the Sackler family, Yes. Purdue Pharma, they I'm not saying other people didn't do bad things, but they seem to be high up on the list of they doing lied. bad things. They lied. They lied. Oh yeah. They lied, and they've addicted. And we've got this. We've got this huge problem with opioid addictions in our culture, because of physicians. And I, I'm going to put the blame on them because that you know. So this. So Doctor Doctor Blake Pearson, I I support what you're doing, man. This like this is. Okay, I'm going to stop ranting because I've got to... Uh, okay. <laughs> go ahead. No. Um, so a couple things I wanted to point out, and they're, they're, they're relevant to the study. So uh, getting people off of antipsychotics who are, have dementia. Um, so, I know it sounds maybe like, oh, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But yeah, I, I talked about a little bit in the interview. I'll just mention again now. When someone has dementia, we just don't have a lot of treatments right now to deal with the, the acting out, the, you know, maybe self-harming, maybe harming others, maybe wandering, maybe, you know, maybe, you know, singing or screaming for hours on end. There's, you know, lots of problematic behaviors that we just don't know how to treat. And at the moment, when we can't do anything else, we reach for antipsychotics and they're not a great treatment because again they're another off-label thing and they increase the chance of death you know that's not a good 
treatment. Like, and I, I, I'm not blaming other people. I, you know, I was involved in long-term care for 15 odd years and I absolutely dispensed this to people in the, we didn't have any other good options. So it'd be really, really, really good for this study to ha add to the list of things that cannabis is good for and give us some, you know, safe and effective options because we just don't have a lot right now. You know, agreed. Absolutely agreed. Um, in my career, I haven't spent a lot of time in long-term care. Of course, as a nursing student, one of our first field placements is in a long-term care facility. Um, that would have been 1981 for me, and I was nursing First World War vets. <clears throat> um, and... Uh, and so I, can, I did that. And then later in my career, I became a manager of, of uh, long-term care locally here. Um, so I, I am aware of what goes on. And I got to tell you, right now, when you consider the work that nurses and nursing aides and, and practical nurses are doing inside these long-term care homes, um, you're talking about uh, one RN, uh, potentially LPN, depending on if, they're, if, they can, if they can give meds, and I think most of the LPNs can now, or, or practical nurses. Um, but then you got one aide, or maybe even two aides if you're lucky. When you, walking through a long-term care home is very discouraging. There's a lot of people snowed. There's a lot of people angry. There's a lot of acting out. So what I liked about what he was talking about is the polypharmy. Now, let, uh, let's think about what nurses have to do. Registered nurses, practical nurses, um, they are responsible for doling out the meds. And as you know, the, the, the amount of meds that some of these, these uh, elderly people are on are astronomical, like a handful of pills. Now, as a nurse, I have to dispense those pills. So I dispense them now. Now there are new dispensaries and, and and health regions that have money might actually have candy machines that dispense them, but most of the rural systems do not. So the nurse has to go into a cupboard, find the patient's meds, dispense them into an individual cup for let's say 30 patients. That's going to take that nurse 45 minutes. Yeah. Right. And then she's got to go around the hallway and deal with giving it to the patients, then she's got to go back and document it. So you're talking about two hours, depending on yep. depending on the size, right, of just doing the first course. Now, if somebody's on TID meds, which is three times a day, or QID, which is four times a day, so that's eight hours. A nurse will work eight to 12-hour shifts. So the majority of the time of the nurse is doling out the pills or yeah. the syrups or giving the needles. What he's suggesting is a game changer absolutely yeah and and a slight sidebar because i don't know why it didn't occur to me probably should have so i stopped physically going into care homes pre-covid it just never really occurred to me how much worse patients were getting during covid because everything you know it most care homes will have some sort of uh activity going on in the afternoon it might be bowling it might be bingo it might be uh having a musical so you know they have activities in the afternoon and they all meet together in the uh for meals usually three times a day and you know and there'll be family members coming back so a a care home properly set up and properly run can be a relatively pleasant uh stimulating place and, busy, busy, and, busy place. And can be a busy place. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. care homes in general 
I'm not saying there's not problems, but can get a bad rap. You go, oh, I'd never want to be there. I'd never want to place grandma there. I've seen grandma who, you know, was living in her apartment at home, you know, uh, you know, we say on tea and toast, but you know, she was actually living on tea and vodka. And she basically went to the care home and dried out. You don't think about it. And suddenly, you know, remembers things again and knows who the grandkids are. And like care homes can be a really nice place for yes. your final days. Yes. But, you know, now you throw in COVID and there's no activities. There's no family visits. There's no group meals. There's, you know, I don't have dementia. And I'm sure my mental health would suffer greatly if you locked me in my room all day. Yeah. You know, I yeah. never thought about how much worse dementia got in these care homes in or the, the symptoms during during COVID. Well, but now think what's happening now. And, and I'm, I'm a statistic, right? I'm one of those nurses that left the field, right? I, yeah. I'm, I am, I have like, I, I don't know if I've announced this on Be From Edness. I've, I've retired. I've quit my job um, and they call it retirement. I call it retreading because I'm looking for other work, but I've quit. I've removed myself from the environment because it's so toxic. Um, 40 years ago, 40 years ago, I can remember being in a conference. Uh, I think I was a student. Um, we were talking about demographics and we were talking about bubbles and we were talking timelines and we we're looking at the future. And I can remember, I was a student, I can remember the instructor telling us that we will be the future leaders. We will be the ones in the future who has to prepare for the healthcare system for our retirement, right? So in my career, um, I've been management, I've been, you know, I've been bottle washer. All over the place. I've been yeah. all over the place in my career, right? But but I can always remember being in situations where we need to talk about retention. We got to talk about retention. And and most organizations will spend money on recruitment and spend nothing on retaining the, the employees they have. So I'm getting to my point. But the point is that post COVID, we have burnt nurses out. I'm one of them. I'm done. I'm toast. I, I couldn't affect change when I was in nursing as an active participant. I'm now out because of this. So you think of what's happening in, in personal care homes now. They're short-staffed. The nurses are burnt. Man, I've said this before. People that work in long-term care, they're saints. The, I, I can't do that work. It, they're saints. So now care homes... Oh, God, man, I, I feel for the healthcare workers that are in care homes. Dr. Pearson's study, game changer. I'm going to say it several times, if you know. Well, and, and, and another nice segue to that rant is they actually have a component of the study when they're looking at caregiver burnout, which, Amazing. again, another thing that <laughs> yeah. I, didn't think, I, did, I didn't think about in a cannabis study, but sure, if you can, like you were outlining earlier, the workload in a care home, well, on any medical, any quote-unquote medical ward is a, but you know it's a lot if you can do anything to you know from you know the pharmacy point of view if you can do anything that reduces the amount of pills the pharmacy gives yeah. that reduces the nursing workload that reduces burnout like it's it, it's one of these uh, synergistic effects well it's it's one of the, it's one of the conflicts in healthcare. you know i think i've said this before doctors practice medicine most doctors most times you see a doctor is that when you're sick, you're not feeling well, you need to go see a doctor. Nurses are wellness practitioners. Our job as nurses, when you are in the care home, our job is to keep you well. When you're in the medicine department, post-surgery, you know, nurses are there to help you get well. 
But what happens, ironically, is that the acute care model, the long-term care model, is a sickness model. The healthcare system we have today is built on sickness. You know, a, a community is going to want a CAT scan. You know, we're, we'll spend a million dollars on a CAT scan rather than spend a million dollars on preventing people from getting sick. We'll spend it on the CAT scan. So, so when you look at what he's doing here, if he can reduce the nurse's time doling out meds by giving somebody some THC to put them to you know to settle them down, some CBDs for their inflammatory processes, and there's one or two pills that come out of one bottle opposed to four bottles, you've just cut down minutes for every patient, and now the nurse can go back to practicing wellness and helping people be well and live the life that you talked yeah, about. And, and that's two other nice segues. One is, yeah, keeping people well, that's fine. But from the pharmacy <laughs> point of view, <laughs> if, if, we, if we reduce them from five pills to one or five pills to two, that could greatly reduce costs. And that should, like you said, should actually get the attention of some of the powers that you would be, think, right? You would think, right? And I think that nicely segues into his, uh, Doctor, uh, two of Doctor uh, Pearson's sort of rants in there, um, getting insurance companies to pay for cannabis. So actually, first I'll give insurance companies a bit of a a plug. The fact that they're even talking about it, you know, five years ago they weren't even talking about paying for cannabis. Now they are, and you know, his first rant was is that was he, he's a very easygoing guy, as you can hear talking to him. But you know, this rant on Twitter about you know this being unethical. Uh, that he's got to give them and I'll, uh, two opioids, gabapentor, pregabalin, and duloxetine, like four different things before they'll even consider paying for cannabis. He thinks is a terrible idea, and, you know, obviously we agree. But, you know, maybe things like this study will push the insurance companies a little more because if it's, you know, if the guidelines are now saying that it makes sense for cannabis to come in earlier and the studies are now saying... And you can go to the insurance companies and hey, you know, you don't have to pay for four things before the cannabis. You know, let's let's talk about not paying for the four things before the cannabis. And then the other one, he, I never even thought. I've heard of greenwashing uh, when we're talking about uh, companies' environmental record, but I hadn't thought thought of greenwashing in the insurance world where we say our company pays for cannabis and the fine print. If you go through these eighteen hoops. I, I never even thought yeah, about that. Yeah, well, well, think about a tick box here. Let's just go through the tick box. Oh, uh, opiates kill you quickly, right? Cannabis, th there's no lethal dose. You can't die, right? So, so even if even if even if you're going to give somebody cannabis, what's the what's the threat, right? They're not going to die. So, if you give them cannabis and it settles them down, that's a good thing, right? And and so you've you've decreased the amount of uh, you decreased the cost of the opiates. You've given them a safe supply of cannabis. You've decreased the workload of nurses doling out the meds. Um, I don't see anything negative in this. Now, it, again, you know, there's always going to be those guys and, you know, that there's not enough studies. Well, as, as Dr. Pearson was saying, there are studies. As, as most of our medical and researching guests have said to us, the studies are there, man. They're, they're there. Um, and Pearson is working on one right, right now, now. Right now, and and I'm excited for him. And I can't tell you how um, how cool this is. Like this, this truly is cool. And I, I was looking at his webpage, and he's working with a nurse practitioner. 
He's using the same language as our friends in Gimli, um, uh, Dr. Shelley Turner uses. He's offering a patient experience. Um, he's got a cool webpage, except it's, it is lacking a reefer madness um, icon. <laughs> just, just saying. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, all, I'm all over this this physician, and I support him. I think it's fantastic, man. Um, let's, and I think I said this before. Um, I got myself in trouble as a nursing student. Um, when I worked in these care homes as a student and I, and I was doling out the meds and I said, why don't we just all give them a reefer? And my nursing instructor said, I did not hear you say that. 1981, right? I didn't hear you say that, Kurt. Okay, but I don't understand why, we're do why is this guy getting six pills? And my responsibility is to know all of the side effects and all of these side effects, nausea, vomiting, tired, death, nausea, vomiting, tired, death, all of them. And then my nursing instructor said, yeah, but what's the benefits? I said, you, 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 I don't see any benefits here. And I, I got in trouble for that because obviously I didn't know enough about pharmacology. I'm still a little weak on pharmacology. But, but still, I, I just even back then, I didn't understand why we were snowing these old people, people that lived in trenches, people that had bombs flying all over at them when they were 18 years old, and we're now snowing them when they're in their 80s and 90s. And, and I never understood it. So 40 years later, I could finally sit here and go, hey. <laughs> I guess we should end with, uh, I'm Trevor Schufelt, I'm the pharmacist. Yeah, I'm Kirk Nyquist, a registered nurse, and we are Reefer Madness, the podcast, soon to be found on Dr. Pearson's webpage, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was another good one, guys. Uh, it's Renee here, back at the studio. And as we usually do, we are going to end the episode with a song that uh, was requested by our guest. And Dr. Blake Pearson had uh, requested the song, Don't Stop. Stop Believing by Journey, and so that's what we'll play. Thanks for listening, everybody. Like the show? Let us know. We're Reefer Madness on Instagram and Facebook, at Reefer Madness on Twitter, or head over to the website at ReeferMed.ca to find out what we're all about and what's coming up next. Just a small town girl, living in a lonely world, she took the midnight train going Just a city boy Born and raised in South Detroit He took the midnight train Going anywhere A singer in a smoky room A smell of wine and cheap perfume For a smile they can share the night It goes on and on and on and on Strangers waiting Up and down the boulevard Their shadows searching in the night
Anyways, man, what, what else is new in your world? What's, uh, what's new in our world? Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24.